Lucas on Life. Hello, welcome to Lucas on Life. I'm Jeff Lucas. Recently, Sky News reported that all references to Harry Potter author J.K. Rowling have been removed from a museum in Seattle after one employee referred to her views on gender identity as hateful. The museum management confirmed the decision, saying that they root themselves in empathy, collaboration, and empowerment, and are looking to create opportunities for underrepresented voices in the arts and culture sector within the next three years. J.K. Rowling has received a barrage of online abuse after her comments on transgender issues, which came to light in a number of posts on X, formerly Twitter, that she published in 2020. In the past, Rowling has responded to the backlash she received, saying she never set out to upset anyone. The author has always denied accusations of transphobia and said that there are a ton of Potter fans that are grateful that I said what I said. Among the posts she had written in June 2020, one said, I know and love trans people, but erasing the concept of sex removes the ability of many to meaningfully discuss their lives. It isn't hate to speak the truth. Speaking on a podcast in February this year, she said, What has interested me in the last 10 years, and certainly in the last few years, particularly on social media, is the idea that I've ruined my legacy. She said, I think you might have misunderstood me profoundly. Writer and broadcaster Esther Kraku has labelled the move by the museum to remove all references to Rowling as ludicrous, It's important to note that this museum is in Seattle, which is one of the most liberal cities on the planet, she told Sky News host Andrew Bolt. So, let's reflect for a while. How do we speak up and speak out when we need to offer an opinion that is in conflict with broad culture? And then what about when we Christians disagree with each other? How well do we do with contrary opinions about hot topics? Tonight, it's Lucas on Disagreement, here on Premier Christian Radio. The photograph hangs in our hallway, a black-and-white reminder of a beautiful blue-sky day. The picture features a smiling young couple standing on the steps of a church, married just minutes earlier. Kay and I tied the proverbial knot back in 1978, a year when the first cellular phone was introduced, Grease was the hot new movie, some of the greatest music in history was produced, and the clothes that we wore were frankly just hideous. Looking back, it seems that a fashion demon roamed the earth, mugging all and sundry, including us. That photograph shows me wearing a suit jacket with lapels so wide, a gust of wind could have swept me off to Sweden. I'm wearing flared trousers, big enough to act as flaps during my flight to the land of Abba, who, by the way, were champions of truly awful attire, which included glitter-sprayed platform hills. The snapshot shows me sporting a kipper tie, the knot slightly bigger than my head. These days, my hairstyle is a stranded peninsula. It used to look like Texas on my forehead, but now has shrunk down to something akin to the Isle of Wight. Back then, I had plenty of hair, which I had permed. My curly fringe stuck out, forming a potential rain shelter for children and small animals. I'm biased, but Kay looked beautiful, even though her wedding dress was a flouncy nightmare. Guests viewing the photo ponder Kay's loveliness, stood next to nerdy me, 
and they usually ask her a question, why? We also have other questions, but not about why we married. We wonder why we considered those fashion choices to be attractive. What were we thinking? And the answer to that question is simple, because we weren't thinking. We were just following the current trend. Only in looking back do we stand amazed at the atrocious fashion sense. Like the rest of the world, we just went along with the crowd. We humans are rather gifted at getting in step with each other. When it comes to going along with whatever is current, ancient fashions just make us smile. But there could be far more serious consequences if we mindlessly follow the barked orders of our culture. In a world where values and norms are shifting at warp speed, those who have determined to follow Jesus can feel intense pressure to just march along to the beat of the culture's drum. We Christians have always been called to be non-conformists, regardless of the denominational club that we're part of. The Apostle Paul, a chap who caused riots everywhere he went, offers us a clear challenge, ever relevant today. In the message, Romans 12.2 says, don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. But that is easier said than done. Step out of line with the current consensus and we'll quickly find ourselves tagged as intolerant and bigoted. Ironically, the worshippers of tolerance frequently refuse to tolerate a dissonant voice, even if that voice is generous and kind. And then there are real concerns about biblical illiteracy among believers. Some of us don't really know what Scripture has to say about controversial moral issues, and worryingly, we're not over-concerned about our lack of clarity. All of this can create a lethal cocktail where we dash lemming-like to thoughtlessly agree. The final nail in the coffin comes when those who teach and preach feel forced to back away from discussing hot potato subjects. Biblical dialogue is cancelled because there's fear of the backlash that might result. Today, let's know that we are called to be people who wrestle with Scripture, including the bits that we don't like or make us feel uncomfortable. If we're to be faithful and known as disciples of Christ, then thoughtful reflection and gracious courage are called for, especially when culture contradicts his teaching. Docile, mindless adherence will surely cause salt to lose its flavor and dim the light of love that we are called to be. And if you need a tie big enough to double as a tablecloth, then know I'm your man. We've been thinking about how we respond when we disagree with culture, but how do we Christians react when we disagree with each other? Golfing has never been a favorite hobby of mine. I'm just terrible at it, and I also think it's pointless to spend all day trying to use a stick to nudge a ball into a hole, or even more tiringly, 18 consecutive holes while avoiding sandpits. Most sports involve doing useless things expertly and in the shortest time possible, so that's not really the reason for my loathing of golf. No, the roots of my disdain are to be found in my childhood. Now, my trauma is superficial. My mother didn't run off in an electric cart with a chap who was wearing check trousers. Rather, my aversion is due to a rather painful collision between me and a golf ball. While camping with my family on the side of a golf course, I must get around to asking why we did that, 
I was walking between the tea and the green when the white cannonball struck. I'm too gentlemanly to specifically describe the area of my body that took the hit, but the arrival of our first child was greeted with great joy and relief. It was a shot below the belt. Literally. And I've taken a few more direct hits since because I've been involved in church leadership. Being passionate people, blessed with opinions, sometimes we Christians do disagree, and sometimes we squabble. Disagreement is inevitable, and actually, it's healthy. It's proof that we're not in a cult, which is good, because I'd look horrid in orange. We should disagree agreeably and commit to fight fairly. I've witnessed a few bare-knuckle cage fights where the saints have gone marching in with hobnail boots. We fight dirty when we make impossible demands that can never be met, as did the lady who insisted that our church wasn't loving enough, a charge that was difficult to evaluate because there's no measuring instrument available. And even if we did get a bad reading on the non-existent loveometer, what was I going to do about it? I could hardly sprinkle Lucas's secret lovey-dovey dust over the congregation while they weren't looking. Another kidney punch is the accusation that the teaching isn't deep enough. What exactly is deep preaching? Does deep mean that Tom Wright has been often quoted, an ancient Mesopotamian tablet has been flashed up on PowerPoint, and the sermon has been sprinkled with a few Greek words other than kebab? Some Christians seem to think that deep teaching happens when they don't understand what the speaker is talking about, as if their confusion is a sign that they are truly connecting with the transcendental. On the other hand, if a complicated idea is presented with clarity, the listeners are tempted to believe that the content is lightweight and the speaker is too. So the better teacher you are, the more likely you are to be accused of not being deep because you're gifted to make the complex accessible. Another jab in the solar plexus is the lots of people agree with me on this jibe. Everyone is leaving the church, said one permanently offended lady, sniffily. I asked who was evacuating. Loads of people, she said. Who, I asked. Two or three are going, she insisted. Their names? I am leaving this church, she said, as I resisted the temptation to headbutt my tambourine. But the knockout punch is thrown when we have a fight, when we disagree, and we insist that God is the one who agrees with us. He's on our side, in our corner. When we thoughtlessly lob phrases around like, God has told me, God is with me, God agrees with me, or bizarrely, God likes the music that I like, we throw firebombs that usually turn a small spat into a world war. Before, we were having a rational discussion but now in disagreeing with our opinion, others are forced to imply that they don't think we've heard from God and that we may well be self-deceived. Dissenters become enemies and calm conversation is rendered impossible. Sadly, too often leaders are the ones who resort to this form of warfare. So when we disagree, if we have to fight, let's fight nicely. With that in mind, I'd like to suggest a new practice when the church starts to feel like a driving range. Sometimes we say amen when we agree, so why not yell for when someone drives an unfair and dangerous verbal shot? That way, everyone will know it's time to duck or quickly climb into a pair of armor-plated pants. 
Living in Colorado, I discovered that there are lots of people who own guns. Now, guns aren't fashionable or as available in the UK as they are in America. Yet each one of us is in possession of a highly deadly weapon. It's called the tongue. Scripture warns us about its firepower, variously described as being like a poisonous dart, a viper's bite, a forest fire, a sharpened razor, and a sword. The tongue is an efficient little killing machine. And often we are armed and dangerous and proficient in the use of it when we disagree. With a so-called slip of the tongue, we can annihilate an innocent character with just one shot. Sarcasm can blast a soul's confidence. A well-aimed jibe or so-called clever put-down can take someone out. Marriages are slowly murdered by daily murmurs. And then there's the carnage that gossip creates. Strong churches have been scattered and too many vintage friendships shattered by the machine gun effect of gossip. Careless whisperers place loaded weapons into the hands of any number of people, invite them to pull the trigger whenever they please, and then pass the smoking gun on. Your turn. Take a shot. We need to think before we speak, especially when we disagree. But let's also remember that the tongue can bless too. Words can bring healing, comfort, and inspiration. I love you has the sweetest sound. Stirring speeches end wars and launch wonderful revolutions. Martin Luther King announced that he had a dream and oppressed multitudes were galvanized into action. So when we speak, especially when there's disagreement, let's think first. And blunt though it sounds, if we're in doubt about saying something, let's be quiet. Mark Twain was right. A closed mouth gathers no foot. Let's watch our tongues and assume that they're always loaded, engaging brain before we take aim. See you next week. Lucas on Life. Welcome to Cape and Ray Hall, nestled in the beautiful landscapes between England's national parks. As a Bible school, we offer short-term courses aimed at fostering your spiritual growth and living in a community. Our historic manor house has something for everyone. You can enjoy indoor and outdoor adventures, connect with students from around the world, and learn how to deepen your relationship with Jesus Christ. Search Cape and Ray England for more information.